Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Anthropology, a podcast series of New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Andrea Ballestero, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Southern California. She has co-edited Experimenting with Ethnography, a companion to analysis published by the Duke University Press exactly uh, one year ago. And she also directs the Ethnography Studio. Hello, Professor Ballestero, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. Hello, Gustavo. It's really a pleasure to be here and to have this opportunity to talk about my work. I appreciate the invitation very much. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about your book, A Future History of Water, also published by the Duke University Press in 2019. I'm obviously more than happy to have this interview and thus offer our audience a close look uh, to this remarkable book. But uh, before we start to talk about your book itself, uh, could you please tell us a bit about your academic life and the previous work you have been doing? Sure. So I was born in Costa Rica, where I grew up, uh, and I uh, was during high school and into college, I was involved with a number of environmental organizations. So before um, going into anthropology, I, I was part of uh, an NGO that focused on community organizing near uh, national parks or protected areas. I also had an interest in environmental law. And I ended up coming to the United States on a, on a fellowship, on a Fulbright fellowship, to do my master's degree. I came to the University of Michigan, and I did a master's in natural resource policy. And at that point, uh, my plan was uh, to return to Costa Rica to continue uh, the kind of work that I was doing before, but the opportunity to continue uh, towards a PhD opened up. And so I was very lucky to have that opportunity. And so I took it and I ended up going to the University of California at Irvine, 
where I did my PhD in anthropology. So my training is thus very interdisciplinary. It includes law, it includes uh, policy studies, and also anthropology. And maybe that comes across a little bit in, in, the, in the book. Uh, I, in Costa Rica, while I was working there, uh, I was part of initiatives related to co- biodiversity conver- conservation and uh, natural, national parks, reserves, trying to think about uh, those uh, territorial formations and legal categories as spaces that should not be thought as um, empty in the sense of, as, of, being, of them being spaces where people don't lead lives. Uh, so I was part of this very important moment um, in the history of our of our country, where the question of what is uh, a national park, what is a biological reserve, was being discussed, and the the implications of this modern perspective on the on the side of the state that these should be spaces devoid of people, in contrast to these landscapes as being landscapes that had been inhabited for a very, very long time, uh, and and in fact, as, as categories of the state being places in a way of dispossession, right? the dispossession of indigenous peoples, while at the same time uh, excluding uh, campesino communities, and uh, the third layer on this, um, being promoted as one of the things that makes Costa Rica as a nation state distinct in the, in the world, in the environmental world. So when I started doing my master's, the opportunity opened to think about the water question. And that's how I shifted from biodiversity conversation into water issues and also into thinking beyond Costa Rica. The, the, my advisor, Maria Carmen Lemos, at that, at that point in the master's, uh, she had been doing work in Brazil for a long time. She's Brazilian. And she offered the opportunity to think and work with her. And, and that's how I moved into water and um, started learning more about the experience of Brazil. And then when I came to continue uh, into my PhD, I, I continued developing uh, those ideas. And the result is, is the book that we're going to be talking about today. Um, um... Professor Ballestero, uh, how um, did you start to, to um, how did you become interested uh, in, in this uh, history of water um, in, and, and how it uh, eventually became uh, this book? Could you please tell us a bit about the, the, the genesis, the history of, of, of this book, please? Yes, so two things I think were, as I look back, because of all of these things, of course, you, you put together a narrative about them as, as you look back. When you're experiencing them, they're much less organized and much less uh, linear than what I'm going to describe. But two things were uh, crucial for me. On the one hand, when I was doing my master's and uh, doing research in the state of Serra in northeast Brazil. That work entailed having to 
rethink or encounter a completely different sense of material relations with the quote-unquote natural world. The state of Sierra is in a semi-arid environment. There are very severe uh, water issues happening historically uh, in that area. And Costa Rica, on the other hand, is a tropical country that has uh, areas that have up to 9,000 millimeters of water a year. So the environmental conditions were radically different. And that was a really important moment for me when I really had to step out of the presumptions that one makes about uh, how to relate to the quote-unquote natural environment and how collectives build those relations. Um, And of course, when you say this, In the abstract, it sounds fairly obvious, but when you experience it in an embodied way, the way that anthropology and the methodology that we use, if you will, the idea of participant observation, when you experience the radical difference in the relations that people have with water in such an embodied way, it really changes both the affective and and intellectual or more conceptual relation uh, or horizon is a better word to use. Horizon through which you make sense of of the world. And so that contrast was was really, really important for me. It required that I stepped out of what was familiar, uh, the questions that I was used to uh, addressing. It required that I... Uh, went, and I'm going to give just a very small example, went from an experience of rain as an everyday uh, event that you have plenty of to the in Costa Rica to rain as something that is exceptional and brings an incredible kind of joy as a special event in, in Northeast Terra. Just to give you an example of the very embodied way in which these contracts happened. So that was the first, uh, I would say, the first really important moment that inspired me to pursue this this work uh, further. And uh, a second second element would be the history of uh, the work or the life that the idea of human rights has had in Latin America, both as a really important political uh, avenue for mobilization and uh, resistance, but also understanding the limitations of the human rights framework for uh, generating uh, change in in our countries. And so as more and more people were talking about the idea of a human rights to water, which at that time was a Uh, an idea that was gaining momentum. It wasn't new in the early 2000s. There was a history before then of people that had been pushing for this. But from the 2000s onwards, there's much more momentum and much more energy around it until 2010 when the um, UN General Assembly adopts a resolution recognizing the human right to water. Uh, 
So that energy, uh, that momentum, uh, the many organizations around me that were working on this issue and thought this was a really important issue to pursue, that was another key factor in making this, uh, the decision to do this kind of work. So I would say the, exper- the embodied affective experience of two radically different environments with different histories, uh, socioeconomic histories, uh, and different geophysical and, and material configurations, and also the effervescence around the idea of the human right to water at that time were, were critical um, in, in pushing me to pursue this, this project further. Now, uh, you opened the book um, um, uh, talking about um, a protest, right? Um, in which protesters uh, claim that uh, water is a right, not a commodity. Um, why did you choose to start your book with, with, this, um, with this experience? Sometimes when you when you do field work, there are moments that crystallize a lot of the uh, curiosities that you have, a lot of the political worries that you have, a lot of the uh, affective attachments that you have. And that moment uh, that uh, occurred in the World Water Forum in Mexico City was a key moment for me where all of these things uh, came together. And they came together in unique ways. Uh, it was not the, the only time or the only place where people were making this kind of statement. However, it was a unique uh, moment and place because it was happening at a site where what we might call the international establishment uh, around water was was meeting. So the usual international um, or multilateral actors were all there, UN, World Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, um, all of the UN agencies. Multilateral, cor- multinational corporations were also there, uh, the big global ones, uh, as well as local uh, companies that were in what they call the water business and uh, community representatives from many parts uh, of the world were there. So it was a moment where all of these pressures and forces coalesced. um, And on top of that, the way in which the protest was organized and the materiality of the bottles that were used to make this incredible sound that was interrupting the activities uh, around uh, the convention center was also pretty symbolic of the ways in which I had been thinking about the materiality of water. And uh, let me just say quickly, what they did was they had empty plastic water bottles that they filled with coins and they shook them rhythmically to accompany the chant that they were doing, which was water is a right, not a commodity. And it was very, very loud. Um, 
the 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 sound they were making. So if we think about the coalesce, all of the people that were in that space, all of the interests and forces that were uh, that encountered there, and then we add to that this protest, this attempt to interrupt uh, the continuity of this uh, the business as usual operation of these actors, and on, and on, to that we add the bottles with their unique um, configuration in the sense, think about these water, these bottles that have no more water in them and only have coins. So representing symbolically uh, the, the dangers of commodification. And at the same time, and this is where we get into the more conceptual uh, interests that I had, by water not being literally there, it captured the way in which the materiality of water is determined in large part in places where we don't see water physically. In other words, I was very interested in thinking about the technical and political uh, ways in which people try to mold water, that they do so at a distance in a certain sense. So not where a river is, not where an aquifer is, not where a reservoir is, but in offices, through computers, uh, in Congress, that uh, offices in Congress that are in a way far away from the quote unquote sources of water. Of course, in these places you have piped water, you know, people, there's no way in which we can dissociate ourselves from water physically or materially. But I wanted to contribute uh, to the conversations that were happening an account of the physicality, materiality of water that didn't take as its starting point the water bodies that we uh, usually think about. And so that initial protest at least in, from my point of view, brought all of those elements in a really powerful way. It was all of these things were concentrated in that event. And so it was, uh, I felt very, very lucky to be able to narrate it as this starting point, which I should say for the uh, colleague ethnographers in the room and uh, for the people that maybe are designing their own projects or starting uh, to think about how to organize uh, their dissertations. This was not the first event uh, that I uh, was a part of. This was not the starting point of my fieldwork. This became uh, a key moment to start the book only after uh, I had spent a lot of time thinking about how it was going to be organized. And so I would say that this event probably happened, you know, 30 or 40 percent into um, what we could call fieldwork. But I should say maybe on the fieldwork uh, theme that as is the case for many uh, of us, there was no distinct starting point when I started doing field work and distinct end point for finishing field work. And that is because I am from Costa Rica, because I have I was before starting the official year of field work as an anthropologist 
uh, in conversation with many of the interlocutors uh, that appear in the book. And after the, the fieldwork period for my dissertation ended, I, was, I also continued uh, my conversations with them. So the artificiality of the idea that you go into the field, spend some time there, and then leave uh, is not uh, something that applied uh, in my case. And I think more and more that is the case for people uh, around the world. Well, um, when presenting the issue of water, you reflect about rights and commodities Could you please tell us um, how these two aspects around water, um, right and commodity, are separated uh, and or linked? Yes, thank you. I think at this point we can return to the protest that the book starts with and uh, the event that I was talking about a, a couple of moments ago. And if you if you think about the ways in which that protest was organized. It was around this opposition between human rights and commodities. The, the protesters were chanting over and over, water is a human right, not a commodity. And that is an opposition that is predicated on the separation or the differentiation between these two uh, figures. What And this was a, a, an opposition that was very present uh, at the moment that I was doing the, the research for this project, in part because communities and activists were reacting against the privatizing wave of the 1990s in Latin America, but in also uh, other parts uh, around the world. And the reaction uh, to the legacy and the injustices of that Uh, of that period was to create this very stark distinction. Uh, water should be a human right, implying that it should be accessible to all human beings as part of, the, of their intrinsic humanness, and that it should not be treated as a commodity, uh, in, in part because the logic of the commodity is guided by ideas of profit that... Uh, lead to decisions that sacrifice the, the well-being, the health, and sometimes the very lives of, of, of people um, and uh, of non-humans as well. So this opposition was, was really crucial at the moment that I was uh, doing the work. But what became really interesting is once the, this opposition is in place as a form of establishing a political horizon, There's a next a question that comes next, which is, what does this mean in specific times and places? How exactly do you look at the world and realize or, 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 or are able to say, here, water is treated as a commodity, and here it is treated as a human right? And this is how that looks like. So that was the question that mobilized the continuation of the, of the project. And what I found is that in the context of our capitalist uh, liberal uh, societies, uh, societies that have uh, other worlds within them, uh, but that are not recognized as such, societies that understand themselves as, as liberal republics and as, as um 
organized uh, around capitalism, in these settings, the distinction was was hard uh, to recognize in the world. Um, It was very difficult to say, in this location, water is nothing but a human right. And in this location, water is a pure commodity. And instead, what was very apparent to me after doing all of the work uh, for the book is that that distinction is one distinct is one is a distinction that is constantly in the making. It's one that requires uh, a lot of energy, both from communities and um, activists, but also from state officials and public servants that are committed to this idea, to be constantly brought into existence, because it, in a way, it's a distinction that has no endpoint. It is a process, in the book I speak about it, as a, as a never-ending mesh of bifurcations. And what that means is that as soon as you are able to unleash a certain event in the world that changes things, for instance, uh, as soon as regulators decide we are not going to increase um, the, how much we charge for water so that we can make sure that the people that have the lowest income in society are not pressured further by an increase in water. Even what, And for them, that means they are acting under the human rights logic. Even when they are doing that, at the same time, they are still working within the notion of commodification, within the notion of a service that needs to be uh, paid for, and materially having the the physical implements, the pipes, the chlorine, the other chemicals to make water potable, etc. All of those things are also part of this market economy. I shouldn't say all of them, but most of them, many of them are. So creating a total partition that classifies water as a pure human right or as a pure commodity was actually more of a political aspiration than an empirical configuration. And so for me, what was really interesting is coming to terms with that situation in which creating those bifurcations is a matter of everyday commitment and everyday practice of making tons of small decisions that push water more towards one or more towards the other rather than aspiring or, or trusting that you can get to an end point where water will be fully configurated as one or, or the other. And to me, this also has implications in terms of how people understand their political activism and their, uh, their everyday, everyday work. Uh, the implication is that it is a constant struggle, uh, and seldom is there a point of arrival uh, that when you get there, you can just move on to something else. It's, it's an everyday constant work of pushing things in one direction uh, so that we can gain, um, we can uh, make the distance smaller towards the human right, for instance, uh, and increase the distance to the idea of, of a commodity. 
but it's not like you leave one behind. Uh, and I should say that the opposite is also true. Uh, when we think about commodification, the 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 goal of the human right to water, the ethics, uh, the, these generalized ethics uh, of uh, the human rights paradigm, it's also haunting, in a way, the question of commodification. We can talk about whether that is more or less uh, effective, but but it's also uh, the case. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you conducted fieldwork in Costa Rica and Brazil. Um, could you please tell us um, how was uh, your relation with uh, with uh, the activist groups um, um, during your fieldwork? Yes, I I conducted fieldwork with both activists uh, and uh, government officials, and for me, it's it's important. Um, to always speak about those so that we can see the ways in which they all participate in a shared in a shared field uh, field um, so my relation with with activists was one of uh, close involvement I was part of many uh, initiative many small initiatives that they were conducting and for me, as I was navigating uh, the the field, it was important to try to think about what could I add to our relationship that wasn't um, something that they already were doing. In other words, I was I was thinking very much about how could I not be not take not undertake an extractivist approach to the fieldwork. So particularly being a person that works in the United States, even though I'm I'm from Costa Rica, there's this of course legacy of knowledge extraction from the from universities and researchers in in the global north. And so I I don't know uh, I should say that there's also a, to a certain level a little bit of, of a relationship in which you're going to to take something out of this out of this encounter, and so the question is, how can you uh, give something give something back? And that something back takes different shapes or different forms. I, for instance, worked with them in smaller projects. So when we were when they were mobilizing to support the constitutional reform in Costa Rica. I did some work on the um, archives of the Asamblea Legislativa, trying to chart the discussions and the arguments that were being made by those who opposed the constitutional reform. And this is what ends up being in the chapter list. But all of that material actually started from their uh, concern with what these representatives were doing and their the interest in trying to lay out a strategy to counter uh, what they were saying. And so that's one way in which our relationship uh, developed. The other thing that I like to uh, share with people about how the work unfolded is that 
I don't know if I would say that I do activist uh, anthropology. I, I don't think so, although all of those categories are a little bit murky, what's inside, what's outside. But the way I like to describe uh, how my relationship unfolded is to say that I focused on shared areas of interest. Uh, so I ended up doing all of this work on how the price of water was set up because people in the community aqueducts that I was collaborating with had this question. How is it that people off in San Jose, uh, the capital of Costa Rica, calculate how much we should charge for the water service? So instead of the work being an account, a full account of how these community aqueducts operated, which could have been an avenue to pursue, what I did was take this shared uh, curiosity, this question that they asked me, and use that as a guiding uh, factor in conducting uh, research in other parts of, of the country. So it's a relationship of working with shared interests or around shared interests um, that is a little bit different from what we could call an activist approach. And I hope that it's, and I trust that it's also different for a more, from a more extractivist approach where you go learn about what these uh, communities do and then come back and narrate it uh, to a, a third audience. Um, it's never only that because since you, given that you do participant uh, observation or put in different terms, given that your body and your being shares so much with the people that you work with, it's never only a matter of taking their stories and telling them. In the everyday, you have all of these relationships and you have the, all of these ethical obligations and responsibilities. Uh, but in terms of the design of a project, if you will, there is a way in which you can begin to think about these shared senses of curiosity and how they might uh, lead a project in a way that adds something or offers something to your interlocutors, something that is of use to them and something that they are interested in, but of course also uh, yields something that you can work with uh, in terms of your other obligations towards your employer, your students, uh, getting your own degree, etc. Now, um, in the introduction, uh, you mentioned, um, I follow water activists and experts as they attempt to create those separations uh, that is between rights and commodities. Um, across other kinds of locations, um, that is not courts, neither markets, right? Um, cubicles, community meetings, international workshops, and even Excel files. Um, throughout those locations, they attempt to produce the preconditions of futures where differences become plausible and entanglements do not preclude the viability of the distinctions necessary for a more just form of sociality. Um, 
could you please uh, elaborate um, a, a, a bit about uh, this uh, remarkable passage? Yeah, the in terms of locations for for research, uh, anthropology relies on this idea of the field and the geographical site. And in my case, the 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 location was again determined by by the question that I was pursuing. So if I was interested in understanding how regulators set the price of water, then I followed them in different locations where they did that work, from cubicles to community meetings where they had to present their methodologies to local residents and gather feedback to, of course, the mathematical um, calculations that they make uh, in the process. And so... If we think about multi-sidedness, um, we, we can't trace the very specific uh, sites, locations, uh, offices, desks, and people. And this is important to me uh, because it also demystifies, in a way, uh, the work that experts uh, and even activists do. But and instead of it, uh, their jobs or their uh, work being conducted in this abstract, unknown place, we can very concretely see where do they sit and what community um, centers do they visit and what formulas they use. So all of this is very, very concrete. The second part of that passage speaks to the ways in which that work and those locations are made sense of. So what is the significance of what they are doing in those tiny, small, everyday acts? What does that account to, is the question that I had. Particularly when what you have in the background is this very intense and energetic demand for something that is very big. Water should be a human right and not a commodity. And you want to see change. And people are asking for transformations and uh, pushing for structural uh, transformations. So how, does, how do all of those little actions in very concrete places relate to this demand for larger transformation? And the answer for me was twofold. First, uh, it required bracketing the, a more linear cause and effect way of thinking. That is, bracketing the presumption that if I uh, find the one decision or the one person that actually... Uh, or the one group of people, or the one institution, or the one law uh, that um, brought about one particular change that will result in the larger structural transformation that that we are seeking. So the first factor was bracketing that, putting it aside, not presuming that that linearity uh, was uh, right there. The second 
uh, factor was rethinking temporality and rethinking how the future is brought into being. And in that regard, my proposal or my suggestion is that rather than having this image of the future as, and I use the word cinematic features, as a movie that you can see happening in some at some point in the yet to come, instead of thinking about the future in that way, what uh, my interlocutors are doing is asking from their everyday actions, how does this decision help produce conditions so that which I see want to see in the future is possible, right? So how... How does adjusting this Excel formula now relate to the conditions that need to be in place so that we can say in the future, water is closer to a human right and not a commodity? Instead of saying, how does this adjusting this formula today, how is that a human right? Because when you frame the question in the second way that I say, how, how do I do today? How, how does what I do today embody or enact a human right? You often find yourselves, yourself with, with a very unsatisfying answer because the magnitude of the changes that, that need to happen are so big. So you end up feeling that this is really not contributing very much. But when you shift the question and you ask, how does this decision that I'm making today creating the conditions so that water can be a human right, there's a larger sense of possibility there. Uh, And that I wanted to recover. That is something that I learned from my interlocutors. That is something that was really, really important for me because I also, before doing this work, even if implicitly, despite all of the theory and the, despite of all of the, all of the philosophy that I could have read, there was an aspiration or a desire to find that one thing or that group of things that would really bring about important changes that are needed. And so paying attention, documenting, and, and conveying uh, to readers the importance of that orientation towards your everyday work, not as the, a linear cause-effect uh, relationship, but the, the, the other one that I mentioned, the idea that what you're doing today sets the conditions for a different future. And asking ourselves, and this applies to water, but this applies to so many other areas of, of life, asking ourselves, how does my decision today, my practice, my, my habit today sets the conditions uh, for a future is a really, I feel, uh, exciting and, and open space for action. Uh, it's, it's an inviting way of thinking about the politics of the yet to come rather than a, uh, a, a more demoralizing or, or frustrating way of thinking about uh, bringing about 
change in a way that requires these heroic uh, efforts that almost leave you drained uh, to act. So that paragraph doesn't capture everything that I say, but uh, what I said are, are many of the things that are behind of, of, that, uh, of that passage that you just read. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. How should we um, understand the term devices in this book? That's an, an excellent question. Uh, the device is one of the contributions that I hope the book makes, uh, and I qualify the device as a techno-legal device. In, in the English language, uh, we tend to think about devices as, as physical things. Um, your phone is a device. Uh, your, uh, if you have a, a tablet or or a computer, a laptop computer that is taken as a device. There's also this association with uh, digital uh, technologies. In conceptually or theoretically, there has been uh, plenty of work uh, on devices. However, uh, work that tends to think about the device as a uh, an example of the logic or the uh, philosophical frame of an epoch. Uh, and so uh, devices, uh, for instance, Foucault talks about devices. Um, and I am interested in a slightly different understanding of the device. I think of the device as uh, a very powerful conjuncture or juncture to understand a couple of things. First, the legacies uh, of particular ideas of who is a subject, what is nature, what is justice, the legacies of those assumptions are usually embedded in these technological devices. To use the example that we've been using for a while, the way of a formula to price water is design, designed captures all of these, if you will, metaphysical uh, assumptions uh, about big questions in a very concrete way. So that's the first uh, element into how I understand devices. Devices uh, bring about these legacies and concretize them. Second, because they're not finished, because they need to be put in action, the moment in which they are adopted and used by people, this, the solidity or the density of these devices uh, shows cracks in the good sense of the word. There's ways in which things can be changed or adjusted or modified or hacked, to use the language, uh, uh, that, that language. And so 
despite the legacies that it embodies, devices are also improvisational spaces. Uh, They offer ways in which shifts and redirections and pivots can occur. Um, And the third element for me, it's the temporality one. Devices are hinges that connect the past with possible features and as such have incredible power in shaping those features. So conceptually, that is how I uh, think of devices and that's how I uh, lay out their significance. I, if, if, if you allow me the... Uh, the commercial. Uh, I have a, a piece that I co-wrote with Yema Oyarsun, who is a, a short piece in feminist anthropology that is laying out uh, in a more concise way what the device is and does as a site for feminist uh, research uh, or feminist analytics and, and practice. Um, so The four devices that the book uh, focuses on are index, formula, list, and pact. And these kinds of devices are not exclusive of the water world, to put it that way. They are throughout, you find them throughout all sorts of areas of life. And what I want to suggest is that when you approach a project and you have questions about how certain forms of sociality are sedimented or presumed to be the ones that should be projected uh, into the future, uh, that you can identify the technological devices that are floating there, uh, there, presumably on the background. People, you might think people are not paying too much attention to it because they are not, you know, the sexy objects that people talk about. Uh, but if you look at them and you use them to trace the social relations, the histories, and the aspirations for the future that people are working uh, with, you will find so many. Uh, interesting and many times unaddressed um, elements or questions or or processes that explain our collective life, that shape it, and that also importantly become sites of intervention, becomes places where if what you're concerned is with thinking about ways to change the world, Devices offer very specific and concrete ways of doing so, channels for doing so, at the same time that they uh, are filled with these incredible conceptual uh, and and theoretical histories and also revealing um, the metaphysical assumptions behind them. So I hope... I would think about devices just to around the idea as both uh, objects that we find in the world that need to be uh, thought about, explored, uh, and and conceptually really interesting and rich sites of analysis, and also methodologically as very helpful and concrete ways to organize uh, your research. Uh, when you feel that they are the problems that you're interested in are uh, are not neatly 
laid out uh, in, in very clear categories. Now, the, the book contains four chapters, right? And the first chapter, formula, second chapter, index, third chapter, list, and fourth chapter, pact. Uh, why did you choose to organize your book in this, in this way, uh, following the idea of, of each of the devices you mentioned? Uh, um, is there a narrative line that, that starts with, with the first chapter formula uh, and ends with a fourth pact? Could you please tell us a bit about this structure of your book, please? Yeah, I, I think that each of the chapters could be read individually, uh, but there's also threads through them. Uh, as I was working on this book, one of the things that took me a, a long time was to find a language to speak about the connections between each of the chapters that didn't turn them into moments of a single story because they are not and because that is not how how people work with them and it was really important for me to try to reflect with the structure of the book a certain uh, mood uh, in terms of how people my uh, my interlocutors the activists the experts and the uh, public officials about how they go about their work. There's very little sense of a, a linear trajectory of this is one story that moves from this event to this event to this event. That's not really how they work. They have tons of things going on. Some of them overlap, some of them don't. And by things, I mean projects, uh, initiatives. Uh, some of them overlap, some of them don't. And yet there's, there are these things that tend to organize their work, these, these devices. And so the, the chapters in the book, like I said, can be read individually uh, or independently, although there are resonances between them. Um, so the first and the second chapter, for instance, uh, formula and index, the actors in those chapters are many of them are the same so there is a, a relationship in that uh, way many of the actors are not so they like i said uh, the stories work on their own the third chapter uh, list focuses on on congressional discussions and constitutional reforms and this is also in costa rica and uh, the fourth chapter takes place in, in Brazil, in Northeast Brazil, in the state of Serra. So practically, uh, what I'm trying to say is that when I was creating the structure of the book, I didn't think of a linear order uh, or a narrative line as you, as you described it. Uh, or another way to say it is that the narrative line is that each of these are their own microcosms. Um, and there's connections between these worlds, these, these uh, microcosms, but there, it's not one account of a series of historical events that follow uh, each other. In the, in the preface of the book, 
I talk a little bit about why uh, this is the case. I was, as I was thinking about exactly the question that you posed, what is the relationship, the narrative relation between these four devices? And uh, I should say that there could have been many more devices. There's just not enough hours and not enough time to write them all. Uh, but when I was thinking about how do these things come together, uh, the, the image that came to mind that helped organize this is the image of the Wunderkammer, uh, right? The image of the, of the cabinet of curiosities. Uh, these early modern collections were things that were asymmetric, uh, were put together um, to show the quote-unquote oddities of the world. And this is, of course, a colonial and imperial uh, practice of bringing things, uh, a little doll, a rock, a piece of uh, farming equipment, a, uh, a little book, uh, all of these, a shell, uh, a fossil, all of these put together into a single uh, collection as a way to show the, the richness and density of, of the world. Coming from there, co working with that image, um, it was very striking to me how there was a parallel to that uh, cabinet of curiosities uh, that came later on in the form of a book where uh, customs and practices of peoples around the world were put together in different uh, sections into a single book. So that's the next uh, form that this imperial logic of putting, of, of cataloging, but also cataloging as curiosities, uh, different uh, practices, different groups of people, different histories around the world takes. And if you continue, it was very striking how to me, how many of the collections that you find today as collections of best practices or case studies that are written or put together in the form of reports in this NGO uh, development environment world have a very similar form and underlying logic. The idea that by putting side by side all of these examples of things that have totally different histories, totally different environmental and political conditions, uh, totally different subjects, affects uh, uh, that make them up. The idea that, I, that by putting them together side by side, you learn something that you didn't know before. And so in a certain way, my book is another iteration of that where I'm trying to say, it's not about necessarily, not, absolutely, it's not about uh, replicating the imperial logic of putting things, of having the power of, put side, of putting side by side these histories. But what if we turn that form uh, inside out and used it as a way to examine the, the knowledge and political technologies that are, uh, shaping the world uh, in the present. If we turn that approach 
in that direction, what do we end up with? And the result is, is the book. It's a, it's a, a, a small collection of devices, of four devices. Now, um, could you please um, tell us um, about uh, the main ideas of each of the four chapters, formula, index, list, and pact? Yes. Briefly, I'll say uh, chapter one, formula, it looks at, and I've mentioned it a couple of times, the formula that regulators use to set the price of water. And what I'm really interested in that chapter in is uh, there's a legal principle in Costa Rica that says that water services cannot be uh, provided for profit, that the provision of water services should be done at cost. So there's, for many people uh, in regulatory agencies, that is what brings water access closer to a human right uh, in, in Costa Rica than to a commodity. So what is this formula? How do people work with this? How do they calculate it? Um, and how do they, the regulators that are in charge of using it, how do they uh, put side by side or bring together the fact that as economists, who the majority of them are, although not all, they are uh, economists of capitalism, uh, right? So they are the idea of what a commodity is, what a market is, and how it works is central for them. So how do they bring that to terms with the commitment that many of them have to the idea of a human water? Uh, human rights to water, but how do, how do they do so mathematically? Because it's the math <laughs> that they use what actually ends up, after many transformations, as a number on a bill that you have to pay at the end of the month in every household in Costa Rica. So how that those translations uh, take place and what are the principles that guide them? And I talk a little bit about harmony and equilibri equilibrium and uh, as, as legacies, as metaphysical legacies that they're working with. The, the second chapter, Index, uh, actually, it's, I think, for the time that we're living, we're talking on in mid-September 2022, where inflation is really, really high, uh, basically, in most uh, places around the world. This chapter deals with inflation. And with the index that uh, it's used to calculate inflation, which regulators use as an ethical uh, quantity or as an ethical factor by which to increase the price of water and not harm uh, people with the lowest income in society or harm them as least as possible. Uh, and what is interesting in this chapter, what I trace is how in the calculation of inflation, there is a historical transformation on how households are understood in Costa Rica and different uh, mathematical methodologies, but also uh, conceptual visions of what a, a household is. At some points, they talk about the household of the worker. At other points, they talk about um, uh, the middle class uh, citizen. At other points... Uh, they talk about the Costa Rican citizen in general. And more recently, the figure that has replaced all of those is a figure that has no humans, in a sense. Uh, 
the household is now a statistical um, calculation of the kinds of objects that are purchased by a family at a particular point in time. And this is something that they arrived at by aggregating the purchases of the households in all, all around the country. Um, they do this research where they go and ask people what are the things that they bought this past month, and then they go to the shops to uh, document the prices of those things. And then statistically, all of that is combined. And the, the, the new household is a household of objects rather than a household of, of people. Um, so it's a very interesting change in in what is the underlying idea of what counts as a household and who is part of a household and what is uh, what objects are there and I, I i it was just really so fascinating to look at the lists of things candles pantyhose beads uh medical services cable tv uh, rice beans it's a very detailed list that they they go through when they're making this uh these calculations, um, and it's all done through an index, a mathematical index. The third chapter uh, uh, list follows the struggle uh, of over many, many years to change the constitution in Costa Rica so that water is recognized as a human right uh, um, and uh, also as a public good. In that case, the very notion of the human right included the formal uh, recognition of water as a, a public good, a good of the nation uh, that cannot be privatized. So I followed the discussions that happened in, in Congress and particularly the opposition that the Libertarian Party was, was making to this uh, reform, which was agreed upon by all of the other parties. And something really interesting happened as, as years went on where a very unique typology of water began to take form where there, in the end, there were about 31 or 32 types of water that the libertarians were saying would become part of the state if the reform were to pass. And those included clouds, uh, ice cubes, uh, puddles, uh, rivers uh, where people clean their animals. It's a really incredible list. And I was really taken by that list and I was really um, fascinated by the way in which an opposition to something that was uh, agreed upon by everybody else could be held for so long and and how is it that these Congress representatives were able to do so and so I ended up uh, working with the idea of, of, of them being literal ontologists and having a a relation to the state that that was dual. On the one hand, the state is all-encompassing, can do everything, can take everything from you. But at the same time, the state is inefficacious and cannot fulfill their promises. And so it's it, it was a very uh, informative thing to do. And I actually, this was, I was doing this work before 2010, and I, I believe that it, it gave me really interesting insight, interesting insights into what has become a more uh, generalized way of doing 
politics uh, around the world, in Latin America and in Brazil, a certain kind of uh, opposition that is done by totally different rules than it was uh, before. The last chapter, Pact, is takes place in Serra, in northeast Brazil, and it follows the work of consultants and uh, not Congress representatives, but Congress functionaries, people that are not elected but work for Congress, as they go throughout the state collecting promises of how people will care for water. And what is really interesting about the pact as a device is that it tries to achieve that which was not possible through legal reform, through structural adjustment, or through political movements. They say, we have tried all of those things, and we still have this large uh, number of people that don't have access to water. What else can we do? And what they do is the water pact, this notion that by making public promises, people will uh, make water their uh, part of their daily concerns uh, and work for its sustainability. There's a, a lot of things that we could talk about about that, like how effective it is or, or not. But beyond that, what was uh, captivating for me is this attempt to... Uh, experiment with a different form of political organization that was not based on on, on the policing supervision uh, that you have when you have a, a more conventional form of planning. You plan to do X and then you have to monitor and make sure that that happens. Because of the massive nature of the pact, that was not possible. There was no one person, one body, one institution that could police whether these uh, promises were taking place. So how do you think about that kind of political organization? Do you dismiss it cynically as a performance that does nothing? Or how do you open yourself to thinking about that experiment as a way to set the preconditions for the future, right? Instead of thinking that it should accomplish that, instead of thinking, let me rephrase that, as a direct cause and effect, uh, relationship, how do you think about the pact as creating the preconditions for a different future? And that's it. Finally, Professor uh, Ballestero, um, in your view, uh, what are the main conclusions um, you, you, um, we can find uh, in this book? In the conclusion, you'll find my reflection and how uh, on this commitment to doing an anthropology of water that doesn't start from a water body uh, and what are the, the ambivalences that I had about it and how I uh, resolved uh, those at least temporarily to close the, the book, to write the conclusion. It also, the, the conclusion also speaks a little bit about this relationship to the field in sense of, uh, in the sense of, the problem that sometimes you you encounter when you're supposed to write a story that has an end for a world that has not had an end, or to put it differently, for social and material processes that continue to unfold. How do you close the book when people are still? Uh, working on all of the things that I'm uh, that I talk about in the book 
that that's I have some reflections on that in the book, and also those reflections uh, include the question of the fact that I am from Costa Rica and I am uh, very close still. Uh, I follow very closely still all of these developments, and so when you are part of of your research in this kind of way how do you conclude a book and how do you conclude a story and also what is the to use your language the narrative structure that you want to give your 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 accounts do you want to tell them uh, in the form of beginning body and end or is there other way to organize the the narrative uh, and uh, finally i also speak a little bit about how conceptual explorations uh, are tied to world-making and uh, real commitments to social change. And so, like I said, even if this book is not a, a, a book that is directly geared towards uh, offering some sort of pathway for action, it's still, I feel, through its conceptual and theoretical commitments, um, is interested in being one uh, participant of uh, that very diverse mosaic of energies and thought that are necessary for, uh, for social change. Well, Professor Ballestero, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we end our interview, I, I wonder if you could tell us about um, what research projects you are working on now and, and which activities are you starting uh, um, maybe in this new phase of the ethnography studio? Yes. Uh, so personally, I am uh, working on a project that I'm calling Expanding the Social World Downwards which looks at the role of aquifers in our relationship to the underground. So I don't think about it as a water project. I think about it as an underground project. And um, this project will have a, a historical component. It'll look at scientific collaborations between Costa Rica, the United States, and the United Kingdom, the British Geological Service in the United Kingdom, the USGS in the US, and uh, the Costa Rican state, uh, to uh, learn a little bit about the ways uh, or how scientific knowledge uh, was being created and shared um, during mostly the 20th century, but I might go back a little bit more. It also entails working with community organizations, or actually I should say committees that uh, have members from community organizations and uh, public officials that are concerned with aquifers and their sustainable management and are trying to uh, develop shared mechanisms to take care of the land uh, and also uh, react or respond to intense pressures from um, tourism, urban development, and agriculture into, this, uh, into these areas. And that part of the project includes some multimodal work. 
in some cartographic work and I'm I'm learning myself about these things at the moment for this project. I've I've, I've been lucky to be in a fellowship uh, from the Mellon Foundation that allows you to take classes. So I've been taking classes in geology in, uh, and in history and in uh, GIS and, and digital humanities cartographic um, uh, possibilities or, or, or instruments. Uh, and so that's my, my personal uh, research in connection to it. Uh, I'm very excited about the Ethnography Studio starting its new life uh, in my new academic home, USC, the University of Southern California. And we are uh, in, in, at this moment uh, planning our next events for the next uh, semester, the spring of 2023, where we will continue with some of our traditional um, and well-tried and, and loved kinds of events like the ethnographic salon and the, and the workshops. But I'm also uh, launching through the studio and in collaboration with two other centers at, at USC, a working group uh, on the future of facts in Latin America that uh, is interested in charting uh an understanding of uh, fact-making truth claims from Latin America that uh, we believe or I believe has a trajectory that does not begin with this universalized notion of facts as um, stable uh, entities that are recognized on the basis of the authority of their producers, uh, like scientific facts were presumed to be um, in in we could say in the Anglo world, I'm not saying that um, in every occasion they were under they were uh, encountered in that way. But the idealization of what facts were was was that, and this comes to be uh, disrupted by uh, all of the things that we've seen in the past few years: the post truth, alternative facts, etc. But our idea is that we need a, a Latin American genealogy to think about these issues, where I am not sure, or I don't think, but the working group is, is launching right now, so we'll see where we end up. But I don't think that the, the genealogy in Latin America is the same. I don't think facts were ever understood to be depersonalized things. Scientific facts were always... Uh, and this is a, a dangerous thing to say, the always part, but uh, grant me some latitude here. Facts were always recognized as part of political projects tied to particular people in our societies, either uh, through the liberal reforms uh, of the 19th century or more recently, in the, in the sense that they were tied to political projects that were led by specific figures. And so how is it that our current moment could be understood when we take into consideration that what, what we're experiencing now, it's not a radical break with that other kind of understanding of facts as depersonalized, objective, universal things. If for us, they were never that, that, that kind of thing, how is it that we understand our current moment? And so this project is going to bring researchers from nine uh, countries in the Americas. And I'm, I'm very excited about the possibility to create this working group and, 
and our plan is to develop some opportunities to involve others if if people are interested. Well, well, Professor Ballestero, um, thank you so much for talking with us today. All the luck and success for what is coming. Thank you very much, Gustavo. It has been a, a wonderful conversation and I really appreciate uh, all of our listeners taking the time uh, to join us today. Thank you so much, Professor Ballestero. It was your host, Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez. See you on the next episode of New Books in Anthropology. <laughs>